Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Eleanor Bell. Eleanor is a whale research scientist who is passionate about conservation and the polar marine environment and works to translate multinational research outcomes into policy. Join us as we talk about microbial ecology, seahorses, whales, and work in Antarctica. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today, Eleanor. I'm so happy to speak with you today all about your work in microbial ecology and, yeah, whales. So you started out in environmental biology and then moved to microbial ecology. But you know, what attracted you to environmental biology to begin with? Um, I've, I've always had a passion for the environment and animals and biology, I've always wanted to make a difference. So I remember being a very green university student, um, very staunch, the sort of activist supporting all the NGOs. Um, And so I was determined to do a conservation environment-based degree. And so I went to St Andrews University to do my undergraduate. And that was the environmental biology degree that they had on offer there. Um, And the great thing about that degree was I could balance my passions for marine biology at the amazing Gatti Marine Laboratory there, or what was the Gatti Marine Marine Laboratory, with um, passion for plants as well. I really loved plants. I loved loved everything. I just wanted to know everything and soak everything up. (laughs) So I ended up doing this quite broad degree, whereas others could specialise and go sort of you could you could take two streams you could be a marine and environmental biologist or you could do plant environmental biology and I just went for the environmental biology so I could put a bit do a bit of everything and um, that's really what it was it was just going to a great university beautiful place um, doing some really amazing things and having some very inspiring lecturers there are particular lecturers that I remember who just bombarded us with in our lectures with amazing images of rainforest plants and coral reefs and told us about the ecology and I was blown away. Wow, that's amazing. It's wonderful that you're able to you know, do such a broad uh, range of topics in order to be able to just put, the, to put together your passions. It's very cool. Absolutely. So the university worked with the um, marine lab and that's how you were able to get the experiences over there? The Marine Lab was part of the university at that time. It's now um, a different, oh. well, it's now a marine research laboratory up in Scotland. But at the time, it was a marine biology lab, so a bit broader than focusing on marine mammals. Um, and so we, you know, we'd spent field work on shores, collecting shells, counting seaweed. Um, we had other tri- trips with other lecturers who took us into beautiful ancient woodlands in Scotland with bluebells on carpeting the woods and deciduous trees you know just heaven for me really took you to your happy place whenever you were doing lectures or doing these field trips oh that's wonderful Um, and I guess yeah I mean I really thought coming out of that degree I was headed for somewhere tropical preferably Australia and the Daintree to (laughs) these rainforest trees huge trees and I had these visions of you know, going through the Wayne Forest, avoiding the massive spiders, because I wasn't all that much of a fan of spiders at that point <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Studying those. Quite reasonable. <laughs> off diving and snorkeling on coral reefs, stargazing at night, because I had quite a um, quite an interest in 
blog by astrophysics. Very <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was very fanciful and um, I hoped I'd get there. And then my life took another course completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And is that where, you know, the microbial ecology came in? Yeah, I remember distinctly at university, a particular plant biology lesson, and it was it was looking at algae. Um, we were looking at algae drops of water in algae in drops of water under microscopes, and some of the algae are just stunning. I mean, there's a number of algae called say diet. They're called diatoms, and they have silica frustules or basically a little glass house around them, and they can be so ornamental and so pretty, a bit like snowflakes. Some of them. And they blow your mind when you see them for the first time. And um, I can remember just being one of the few students who went, oh, my goodness, they're so beautiful. And then ending up having a conversation with the lecturer because she obviously, most people went, oh, microbiology is so boring with little things. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying I found it easy, though, because I remember writing an essay about microbiology and um, my first essay and not actually doing it particularly good job of it because it was such a new concept and I couldn't get my head around it and I was trying to get this this microbial loop of where algae and bacteria are cycling down at the bottom of the food web and recycling nutrients and then it feeds up into the food web we're all more familiar with and all the con scientific concepts and I just didn't quite get it so my essay you know was not great and I didn't get an amazing score <laughs> but I was enough to go oh I need to know more about this um, but then set that aside. Um, and then later on in our, our degree, I think it was our fourth year, we had an amazing gentleman and lecturer come up from the British Antarctic Survey to give us a, a polar ecology course. And we weren't looking at microbes. It was all the other cool Ooh. polar animals and how they're adapted to life in Antarctica and the, out the Arctic. And again, I was thinking, oh, this is absolutely fascinating, but there is no way I could go to work in Antarctica. I hate the cold. <laughs> I, I want these tropical rainforests. I want these. <laughs> but would you believe it? I finished my my degree, and the first thing I'm doing, I'm looking for a PhD. I'd done pretty well in my degree, and I was advised to go and do a PhD. And I'd really wanted to. I'd always known that was a career goal. Um, and the, one of the first PhDs I saw advertised was for microbial ecologists to go down to Antarctica and study microbes in lakes in Antarctica. Wow. And part of me went, this is ridiculous. One, you don't like the cold. Two, it's microbes. Are you really inspired by those? They're hardy, large rainforest trees. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I went, you know, how, how many opportunities am I going to get in my life to potentially go to Antarctica? I'm going to go for it. And I exactly. did. And I, yeah, wonder of wonders I actually got this PhD. Um, and it was a time when in the UK you applied for a project that was already developed by a lecturer and they had something in mind they wanted to do and money came with it. So it's not like you can do here in Australia or you can do now anywhere in the world is design your own PhD project. Yeah. Um, I'd gone into a pre-design project that I could mould into my own. So within a few weeks of that application and getting the job, I was down as a down in Australia, three weeks of training to get wow. me ready to go to Antarctica. And a few weeks later, I was in Antarctica at 22, starting a PhD. That's amazing. A very long way from my supervisor, a very <laughs> long way from my family. <laughs> oh my goodness, how was that experience? Was it the first time you'd been that far away for that extended period? 
Absolutely, because I spent 16 months in Antarctica uninterrupted. I didn't come home. You can't get oh, out wow. once you're in. Yeah. Um, I was one of the um, sort of, there were only a couple of us, two women on station. And I think there were, we were 18 men with us. Um, and we two women were very young. We were both PhD students under the same supervisor. And so it was a whole new experience for us both in terms of scientific learning, a very rapid learning curve, because I'd never done any of this stuff before. And I was learning on my feet and on the job. And also socially, just living in an isolated environment with people who were from all different walks of life, very different backgrounds. Australian for one, you know, I was two, the two women on station, we were both young yeah. scientists from the UK, very different background to all the Australian men effectively who were on station. And so it was a, yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> wow. So what sort of preparation do they have you do when um, before you actually head down to Antarctica? Okay, well, yes, we, well, we do a lot. I obviously did some scientific training. My supervisor brought me over to La Trobe University for a few weeks, and we did some intensive training in the lab because I knew I was going to be taking lots of water samples. I was going to have to prepare them for the microscope. I was going to have to measure various chemicals in the water, and I had to learn all these techniques and at least run through, through them a couple of times with her and you know design the protocols of what I was going to do. Um, and so I had that intense training wow. and then came down to Hobart, the Australian Antarctic Division. And at that point, you're getting the very intense field training, how to do rope work and go down a crevasse if you, or a vehicle tips over how you ride a big vehicle, um, how to walk safely wow. on ice, don't go through it, because I was going to be working, working on frozen sea ice and frozen lake ice, which you have to be able to test it safely so you don't end up into very cold water. Yes. Um, we were going to be flying around in helicopters, so there's helicopter safety work. There was a degree of medical training, because at any point in time, you might be called upon on station to help um, assist with... Um, surgeries and things like that if, if there was a medical emergency so we did very yeah. intense training some people got fire training I wasn't there long enough to do the whole cohort of training but you know a lot of people on station trained as fire officers because that's our biggest risk when we're down in Antarctica if the station goes up in flames yes. big um, so it was a whole absolute huge range spending time My even goodness. just campcraft how do you deal with the intense cold and campfire wind and, you know, safely do that sort of thing? So, yeah, massive amounts of training and preparation. That's, that seems very intimidating for someone who would have been just fresh out of university and, you know, just, yeah, having such an incredibly, extremely different life experience. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually a lot of fun. I'd, I'd done a lot of sort of camping and that sort of work with Duke of Edinburgh School. And I know it's very far removed in Antarctica, but I had an outdoor an outdoor passion and I was quite happy to learn new skills. And I, I've always thrived on learning new stuff. So I, I very much enjoyed it. And I suppose the key to all that training is not just safety, but it's the bonding with the group you're going to spend the next you know, basically year and a half with and you can't get away from. So it's learning about other people, learning communication styles. And there are all these, this psychological preparation that goes on as well and briefings. 
and of course the 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 the, the, the very important training of that sort of how to interact with one another interpersonal um, connections and communication harassment training what do you do if there's any harassment issues or bullying issues really they're really key actually I would say those social skills are more important than the actual physical skills yeah because yeah those are the only people you can interact with for the entire period you have no choice but to figure out how to get along and to you know be able to communicate well with them yeah and the social side can either make or break your project can make or break you you know so it's really important yeah, it's brilliant that they actually put so much thought into the social aspect of the training as well. It, it's, yeah, I, I had no, I mean, it makes sense, of course, but you know, I had no idea that there was that much detail as part of the preparation. It's very good. Yeah, it's even more intense now that learning more and more in every year, these program training programs evolve and they're getting better and better. That's wonderful. So how did you find your first experience in Antarctica and in the cold and pretty much where you have to be very self-sufficient because, as you said, like, you know, access to assistance and, you know, backup of any sort is very limited. Yeah, I mean, if I'm brutally honest, you say it's one of the best experiences of my life, but also one of the worst. Because it is intense. It's incredibly hard to be away from your family. There's always going to be interpersonal issues that just become little niggles, become big issues and dramas and stresses. Um, and you, you miss home and you're very isolated. But in terms of what we did and what we experienced, it was phenomenal. Um, I, I'm never happier than when I'm on the ice. I, I love woodlands. I love green spaces. That's another passion of mine. But um, when I'm working, I love being out on the ice. I love the environment. I love being co the cold, um, which is ironic for that student who thought, <laughs> I don't like being cold, but the gear you get is so good. And if you're dressing well and you're layering up, you don't feel the cold. It's so dry down in Antarctica. It, to be honest, I, the closest I've come to being dangerously cold and mild hypothermia was working in Scotland where it's wet and damp and cold. And in Antarctica, if you're wearing the yeah. right gear, the cold doesn't seep through to your bones the same that it does um, in other damper places. I mean, for goodness sake, I feel colder sometimes in Tasmania than I ever did in Antarctica. Because <laughs> houses aren't well insulated and, you know, we don't, we get lazy about clothes. We step outside thinking, oh, it's not too bad. And then we end up damp and cold. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have that luxury in Antarctica. <laughs> don't go out unless you're fully prepared with a full emergency kit. Um, you know what you're doing. You're fully trained. And um, the most I ever experienced and anyone I knew experienced was you get little, sometimes you get a little bit of frost nip where you get a tiny white patch where maybe your balaclava has got a bit of ice and it's frozen to your skin and, and you just get a yeah. little white patch. You just have to warm up, you know, put the heel of your palm on, warm it up. Or really cold fingers, which is can be agonizing to warm up, but never as severe as frostbite or anything like that. And that's often part of the parcel of working with a lot of water in a very cold environment. <laughs> yes, can imagine that. <laughs> yeah, so after that, you mentioned you did work on seahorses. So how did that come about? <laughs> Yeah, so in Antarctica, I was working on beautiful lakes. Um, there's a whole load of lakes where we are that are basically relics of when 
when the glaciers retreated, the ice age and the land, isostatic uplift it's called, where the land raises up, the glacial weights off that land and there are scoured pockets where the ice created craters in the earth basically and those were filled with water and they're the lakes that I was then working on and they've been isolated from the environment for far for sort of 8,000, 10,000 years so they have really unique microbial communities so I was doing that but like and it was really exciting going out every week following these lakes taking samples and literally getting a an idea of how the system was changing throughout the year, the annual cycle of light and dark and ice cover and no ice cover, flying around in helicopters, driving fast on quads around the ice and haglands and having a fantastic time. (laughs) But like all PhDs, you have to come home at some point and write up. And by the time I I came back to Australia and I was here for a few weeks, a few months um, finishing up at the Australian Antarctic Division with all my samples because obviously I had thousands of litres of samples and heavy that I hadn't necessarily finished with all of them yes. I could use in the labs here they weren't going to be shipped anywhere it's just too expensive so I did that and then I went back to Nottingham University where my supervisor was then based and I wrote up there um, and had a, had a lovely time I had some really good supportive friends and um, but it it's not a fun time writing your PhD. I don't actually know any PhD students who've gone through and not thought about dropping out within a few minutes, months of finishing because they're just so stressed yeah. and so fed up. And I came close as well to going, I just can't do this. You know, <laughs> what am I doing? I, this yeah. is going to be rubbish. Um, <laughs> and, and so by the time I finished, you know, I did finish. I really, I actually thoroughly enjoyed the Viva way um, where you have that the interview, the one-on-one interview when you finish your thesis and it's being examined, and then you have the the oral with two super, two external examiners. And I can remember being one of these ridiculous people who um, went in really nervous, but four hours later came out of the interview going, "That was just brilliant. I had so much fun talking about it all." And my supervisor's nervously sitting there going, "That was only supposed to be an hour and a half long. What went wrong?" And I said, "Nothing went wrong. We had an absolute brilliant time." We had a ball. Um, and yes, yeah, so I got yeah. my PhD. I was going to say, four hours is a very long thesis defense. My goodness. <laughs> and I didn't expect it. It didn't feel like that. And it didn't have to go on that long. We just yeah. had fun. I, I never felt threatened. Or, That's amazing. And I never felt like I was being scrutinized. It was just a really good talk about the experience and the work and where it could go. And, yeah. Um, and it was just really, yeah, really good. And I actually, one of the examiners I ended up working with in Antarctica. Um, oh, very cool. Later on, several years later. But, you know, having made that connection, it was great. Um, yeah, so, okay, the, to cut a long story to short, <laughs> I, went, I was completely jaded with... Um, microbial stuff by then not that I didn't like the microbes I just needed a break from that intensive work I'd been doing I yeah I didn't really want to go straight into a similar postdoc um so I um I was just searching around for something I could do that would still use the transferable skills that I'd gained and that independence of, of having worked in Antarctica and all those the interpersonal skills I'm looking for something that would take me a little bit closer to my passion for real conservation, that doing pure science is great, but I wanted to apply it somehow. It didn't, yeah. I needed to know it was going to make a difference. And that's where the seahorses came in. It was, again, once again, I'm looking around for postdocs, 
pretty aimless. I don't. I knew what I didn't want to do at that point in time, um, but I didn't know what I did want to do. And another postdoc just came up um, that was to work with um, Project Seahorse, which is a con seahorse conservation organisation that was then based um, out of McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And um, they were looking for basically anyone who with a biological background who had a passion for conservation and was interested. And again, I thought, I've got no hope. You know, I've been working in Antarctica, not tropical coral reefs. I've been working with microbes, not anything even vaguely fishy, never mind seahorsey. Um, <laughs> and there's no, there's no way they're going to want me. Um, but I applied anyway. Um, and... I went, I was actually flown to Canada for an interview, which is an extraordinary experience. Um, actually, no, I think it was, I think we actually went to Chicago to the Shedd Aquarium for the interview rather than Canada. And we, um, there were various candidates. Um, and one of them happened to be one of the, the girls that I'd done, I want the, the other girl student that I'd been in Antarctica with. So we felt very awkward about oh, this. Funny small world. <laughs> discussion about it. We were both applying for the same well, how did we feel? And in the end, we decided, I, I think, you know, it was actually, looking back, it was pretty amazing that we did. We just said, you know what, let's just go and have fun. They want to fly us to the States to interview us. Let's just go and have fun. And we got on the plane. We actually got upgraded. So we had a lovely flight over together. Um, we obviously got on well because we've been in class together. And we just enjoyed the experience and neither of us expected to get anywhere. Um, I suppose the only awkwardness would have come when I got the job and and, and she, I reckon she probably would have done a better job than me actually. <laughs> but I was offered the job and um, and it was an extraordinary experience. Again, I thought very strongly, do I really want to do this away from home again, going to Canada this time? But just had to take an opportunity when it came up to do something extraordinary. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And yeah, it's it's daunting to go so far away from the environments that you're familiar with. And you know, I guess having done the Antarctic trip, it made it a bit more. It wouldn't be familiar, but at least you know what to sort of expect out of that kind of distance and experience. So yeah, it's great that you took that opportunity. Absolutely. And I knew that Canada had enough cold weather that it would match my Antarctic experience, but also warm weather. And I knew I could get on a plane and come home or my parents could come to me anytime. So it was nowhere near as isolating. Yeah. And I was learning, you know, I was in Montreal, French speaking. So I was hoping to use some of my French and I was still applying skills I'd learnt. But um, what was extraordinary about the project was that it was you know, the seahorses themselves are extraordinary creatures that, um, you know, everyone, they're, they're most known, well known for them being the male that gets pregnant, the male that carries the yeah. the eggs and then gives birth to the young. So that's extraordinary in itself. But it was the fact that they were an amazing icon or mascot for conservation. So you have this really charismatic fish that you can use to sell so many of the conservation ideas. And that's what appealed to me because you're not just talking about conserving horses themselves, you end up talking about habitat destruction because it's their habitats that are being destroyed. You end up talking about livelihoods, alternately, alternative livelihoods for the communities that rely on fishing seahorses 
um, finding an alternative for them. So I did a lot of work with the communities in the Philippines, um, helping them develop products such as woven baskets with seahorses on that would be sold to the Shed Aquarium in Chicago and other aquaria within around the states um, to provide an alternative that then they then didn't fish as many seahorses so they stayed in the environment and helping them set up marine protected areas so the seahorses had somewhere safe where the fishers wouldn't go and take them and then ended up in sort of the entrepot in in um, Hong Kong where they trade an awful lot of um, species for various medicinal purposes. And that's one of the big places that seahorses end up, dried seahorses. But that was one of the things that struck me as being so yeah. important. We weren't just hammering a conservation message, don't fish seahorses, they're taking away. We were trying to give something back, um, helping them establish a guest house where they can yes. have tourists and eco-tourists come. So there was some income coming in and you take these tourists out to snorkel and see the seahorses rather than fishing them. Um, establishing small marine protected areas and a network along the coast. So it was all incremental steps to help the community um, help themselves effectively. That's amazing. And also doing education programs with the kids. I can remember writing the programs. Um, and that's where a bit of one of my passions lies is education and outreach. And, um, and so there were so many elements to that job. And one of the lovely things was that I was based in Montreal at McGill University, but every, one, for a week, every month, I spent um, in, in Chicago and I worked at the Shed Aquarium. And there I helped the big, beautiful seahorse symphony exhibit, which was all about how beautiful seahorses and their relatives like pipefish and sea dragons. And um, they... There were a lot of conservation messages in that. So I was helping to design the, the exhibit and yeah. have the conservation messages and produce educational materials. So there were, there were so many elements of the job that were fascinating. Yeah, that's brilliant. So um, I know that seahorses are used in traditional Chinese medicine, but what other industries or what other purposes were they being fished for? Um, they were being fished for live for aquarium, the aquarium trade. Several million a year end up in the aquarium trade. And um, the unfortunate thing about that is they often die en route or when they get to aquaria, they're very, um, they're very delicate yeah. creatures. They have, you know, a very bony skeleton and which is why they dry so beautifully. And, um, but they have a very thin skin, which yeah. is prone to infections. And they also have a very specialist diet. They've got, they're called the, the family, you know, so the, the scientific name is Cygnethidae. So the, Use jaw. So all the seahorses and their relatives, pipefish, sea dragons, pipe dragons, have this fused straw-like jaw and they suck food up. And they basically ambush prey as it's swimming by. The seahorses here, the prey swims by and it's ambushed, sucked up. And so it's actually hard to feed, keep them in aquaria because you can't just put a few flakes on the top of the tank. You need to have live prey in there and that, that live prey has to have a sufficient quality and vitamin content that the seahorses are healthy. So they don't do very well in the live trade. So that was another education message. Just don't keep them. If you're going to have aquarium fish, don't have seahorses yeah. because most of them don't survive, no matter your good intentions. And then because they dry really well, a lot are sold for souvenirs. So those seahorse key rings or seahorses in resin and 
So again, it's just the messaging was not just about seals, it's about all of these creatures. Just don't buy animals that are stuffed in resin and in a for um, a, a paperweight hearing. It just it's not necessary. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, makes perfect sense. <laughs> so after seahorses, you found your way back to microbial ecology. Or was that where you kind of went to even bigger to Wales? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's when I went back to microbial ecology. So I left Canada <laughs> and came back to the UK for a while. I was ready to ready to finish and move on. And um and I did go back to sort of my roots and microbial work. And again, that was just chance. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a period at home, a few months where I didn't have a job. And I put myself through an intensive driving course because I'd never, I really hated learning to drive when I was younger and just refused it. Basically, gave up <laughs> sort of, too stressful, didn't need a car, I was happy to walk and cycle everywhere. And um, and it was later in life it became apparent that having a driving license is very useful for getting jobs and doing field work. So I did an intensive driving course. And then once, <laughs> yes. once again, I'm looking around um, to, for postdocs, alternative postdocs, and something came up in Germany and it was microbial work. And what was intriguing about it was it, 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 it did focus on something I knew about, so I felt a bit more confident applying for it. It was focused on, firstly, extremophiles, which basically that's extreme loving organisms, so microbes that like living in tough environments. So I'd done the Antarctic. This time it was to work on microbes that lived in extremely acidic lakes in Germany. So there's a region in Germany called the Lausitz, which had a lot of brown coal mining. And the old mining pits have now filled with water leached. And they are so acidic. You know, we're talking pH 2 to 3. Extremely acidic. Oh, goodness. Um, so you'd think grow in them. And they're in this extraordinary colour. Some of them are bright red, literally like the bright red behind me in the sunlight. They're incredibly red. Wow. All the leachate that's coming in through the, the soils. And, but organisms do live there, bacteria, viruses, incredible algae that have just ad adapted to living there. And even some small single-celled animals, heliozoa are one of them. They're literally called heliozoa because they're sun animals. They look like little suns. Um, and so, and they were I, what I ended up working on and doing various experiments. Um, and it linked with what I've been doing in Antarctica really well. And... <laughs> It's another one of those moments in my life where I almost didn't do it because I thought, oh, really, do I want to live in Germany? Um, <laughs> coming from the UK, you have these stereotypical views of, you know, Germany must be all bombed out after the war. And it's it just, I suppose that's where you brought up these unconscious biases you have about the nation that you were, the, the nation that your nation was at war with. And they were completely unfounded, you know, that was never said to me, but I'm kind of <laughs> worried I'd end up in an industrial, very modern city that had been rebuilt past the, you know, post-war. And I might not be very happy. And gosh, I didn't know a single word of German. How was I going to manage? But I went for the interview thinking, well, at least it's, <laughs> well, it's practice. You know, if nothing else, if someone's offering to fly you to another country, you go, you have the experience. And even if you don't get the job, you, yeah. you learn from it. And oh my goodness, I fell in love with it. Um, I was based at Potsdam University, 
and it's one of my favorite places in the world i loved chocolate box perfect buildings color lakes wow rivers um woods just everything i wanted plus some amazing people so i had some of the happiest five to six years of my life there and um and i wouldn't have left if i didn't sort of have a a, a career offer, you know a career progression or offer yeah but I, my heart my head told me take even though my heart was saying that Germany's your place to be um so I had an absolute ball there and <laughs> I had so much support and freedom that I was able to write lots of grants for European grants for money that were very good at that point in time um and actually took myself back to Antarctica to do another postdoc looking at microbes in Antarctica and I also got to go in the Arctic as well through that um through being there, just by writing grants, getting the money, being supported by my my supervisor to do whatever I wanted and take my wow. research where I wanted, so had an awful lot of fun. It's it's wonderful that you were given such a wonderful opportunity to be so flexible about the kind of work that you could do. Is that uh, common in postdocs, or is that just based on you know who you're working with and where you're based? Uh, well, in my experience, it's not always common. When I was a postdoc with the seahorses, there was flexibility in the sense of I had very diverse tasks, but I had a very specific role. Um, I think it was just the nature of the group I was with. I had a very supportive boss. Um, so I was doing microbial stuff. It all fit within the remit of extreme algae, extreme bacteria. How are they surviving? So the, the pieces of the puzzle all came together. Um, and it's bringing money into a university, it's bringing kudos. Um, and so they, they they didn't mind at all. It, the German system was very well set up for that, for you to follow your own threads and paths. And as long as you got the job done that you'd originally been employed for. Originally, I think they'd only had, I, I struggle to remember, but 18 to 18 months to two years money for me for that particular postdoc. And I did that. It was at the end, I just kept finding money to day with the group and just evolve my research and, and and take them along with me a little bit as well and I, I could have continued doing that for the rest of my life but it it the system in Germany is such that if I'd wanted to go the next step to being a lecturer I would have had to probably move to another institution you generally you generally do six years in an institution and if you're going to get a the next step you go somewhere else and I didn't want to go anywhere else I wanted to stay where I loved in Potsdam and um, so I, I, but I was headhunted for a, a, a lectureship position in Scotland. So I went to Scotland. <laughs> so from Scotland, uh, what did you end up doing after your lectureship? Um, so after lecturing for, I think I was in Scotland for about five years and I loved it. I loved, I absolutely loved lecturing. I did obviously did research as well, went to the Arctic, did a lot of microbial research and was, but I was teaching a lot of marine conservation. That was the, one of the, one of That's the wonderful. elements that got me the job. Said, what would you like to teach? And I said, well, I've noticed you haven't got a marine conservation course. I'll put one together for you and I'll teach that. And I had such a ball because I could bring in my elements wow. of all my knowledge, of seahorse ecology and coral reef ecology and microbial and yeah. you name it. And I had a lot of designing interactive interactive um exercises for the students and it was a very small new university but that 
that reignited my passion for, okay, I do love microbial stuff and I love going to the Antarctic and the Arctic, but I, I need, I still need that applied focus in my life. I need to know that I'm making a difference, yeah. not just to the students that I'm teaching, but to the world. Um, and it just so happened that by that point in time, I you know met my husband and we'd got together and, um, and that's a story in itself, meeting sort of in Antarctica, but He'd come to live with me in Scotland and it got to the point where he did a master's, created a master's in order to be with me in Scotland and we lived there and worked, but he couldn't find anything. He finished his master's. It's very, where the marine lab was that I was working, was a very small place in Oban on the west coast of Scotland and there weren't any opportunities really for him to develop yes. his own career. And so we made the collective decision to come back to Australia to where his family was um, we had a family at the time. I, <laughs> I, we had a two-year-old little boy and I was very heavily pregnant with my daughter mm. who arrived literally three or four weeks after I arrived in Australia. And so I had a period in my life where <laughs> I was working, um, well, I was working on a, diff a different sort of work, as you know. <laughs> um, yes. And I was, I was actually finishing editing and writing a book on extremophiles, life in extreme environments, that I'd started, so it gave me some focus. I have to, when this baby comes, you know, so I literally submitted. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I literally submitted the book to the publishers as I was in labour and then went to the, went to the press, send on the email and turned around. And oh, said, right, my goodness. <laughs> so it was that tight. Wow, um, that's diligent. <laughs> it was a bit nuts looking back. It was what I had to do, otherwise that book would never have been finished. But anyway, um, oh so goodness. I had then 11, <laughs> you know, had eleven. <laughs> it gets worse. I had eleven oh, no. months of not working, um, but I suppose it was maternity maternity leave. So I that's definitely work with two little yes, kids. It's fair enough. <laughs> in, in a new country with no, you know, new house and, you know, no family around to support me. So that was an interesting time. But um, again, I started searching around for knowing at about a year old, I'd be willing to really actually an old friend who was the wife of someone I'd wintered with my first winter in Antarctica. Um, oh. And turned out she was running a childcare. And so we ended up with an amazing place for our children. And so I could start thinking about going back to work. And it was, again, what on earth am I going to do? I know I want to work at the Australian Antarctic Division if I can, because that's where I've got experience. And Hobart is the gateway to Antarctica. And so I um, applied for a job that came up, and it just happened to be Wales, within the Wales group here at the Australian Antarctic Division. Um, and what appealed to me was not that it was Wales, because although I love them, I was never a, the marine biologist who was set on, I'm going to work on whales and dolphins. Yeah. I was, I was drawn by the, the conservation aspect, it was very much working with the International Whaling Commission, um, looking at ways to do research that will add, contribute to the conservation and management of whales and other cetaceans and marine mammals. And um, so I applied for the job. And it was it was to be a coordinator of a big Antarctic blue whale project that was under development. Um, and I didn't actually get that job. I was 
um, I, I wrote the application with a, a, a very young baby on my chest, 4 a.m., um, absolutely <laughs> exhausted, absolutely wrecked because she, my daughter did not ever sleep. Oh, no. Um, and, you know, I don't know how I even got to the interview. But it was one of those interviews where I went into going, I'm so tired. I don't think I'm the right person. I don't think I'm the right person for this job. I'm just going to go and make the most out of it and enjoy it. And I actually really did yeah. enjoy the interview and I could draw on all my aspects of the conservation I've done with seahorses to bring it into this, plus the scientific background and the fact I'd done two winters in Antarctica by that point. So they were saying, well, would you be willing to go south? Yeah, absolutely. No problem going to Antarctica here. And I've done lots of marine work, voyage, marine voyage work. So yeah, that was all fine. And I didn't actually get that specific job I applied for because they had a, um, a sort of slightly more qualified candidate who'd done very specific work that's fit. Yes. But about a month later, um, and it wasn't a surprise to me, I wasn't worried, I didn't mind staying at home a little bit longer with the kids. Um, but a, and about a month later, I get a phone call from the person who interviewed me saying, look, you did so well at interview. We've had another job come up someone's decided to leave suddenly and we actually need you for this sort of bigger broader role would you yeah. be interested so that's where I am now I, I said yeah sure um wonderful there I am working with whales and um yeah that's brilliant so I guess uh, I guess the big question for me is how do you manage juggling young children and having to take your you know I guess your field journeys to Antarctica well, it's a good question. There was a good period where I didn't go to Antarctica because they, the kids were too young and it would not have been fair on my partner um, to leave yeah. him with the children. I did, I distinctly remember the first time I had to leave my, oh, how long, my little girl would have been just over one or just under one. So I just had the job for a month and I was sent to Panama as part of the Australian delegation representing Australia's interests in the International Whaling Commission at their um, scientific committee where you talk about the research that um, is applied to the conservation and management decisions that higher level politicians make at the commission meetings later. Um, and I, my daughter was only about 11 months old and it was the first time I'd left her. And I was only going for, I think, 10 days, but I was breastfeeding at the time. And it's the classic story I know you've heard before that, you know, I'm pumping yes. and, and sadly, I tried to find a, a milk bank in Panama before I went thinking at least if I'm pumping, I can donate it to a hospital or somewhere. But of course, it's too, it, you know, it's really hard. The amount of testing you yeah. have to do to actually do that and check that your milk is safe. Yes. In the end, I just ended up the heartbreaking, you know, pumping milk and pouring it down the sink. And that's my overriding memory oh, of that yes. meeting is like watching breast milk go to the sink. Oh, no. I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> when I get back. But I, it's an amazing experience meeting new people and um, really that front line, yes. this is where, you, where science matters, where you're presenting science and you know that it's being used for the greater good. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, came back and and I kept going annually to those meetings, but I suppose the children were, oh, I think they would have been, I'm trying, I'm racking my brain now to think, but they would have been more closer to sort of six, seven before I actually went to Antarctica again. And I was very selective about only doing yeah. trips that were a few weeks, three or four weeks long. Um, we had some very 
interesting opportunities to go on tourist vessels around the West Antarctic pen Peninsula, which is the bit of Antarctica that sticks up under South America. Yes. So you can fly to South America and then get on a tourist vessel, go down very quickly, a few days you're in Antarctica. And we're very privileged to be able to use the, the boats on and, and the coxswains they had on those boats off the tourist vessels and drive around, do our whale work, tagging them, putting cameras on them, um, taking biopsy samples. While the tourists then got the experience of watching what we did and we gave lectures when we got back on board and it was all that ecotourism aspect. And I absolutely oh, that's so cool. It. it combined the passion for outreach with being in the field in Antarctica, having a great time. Um, and so and it was perfect because then I was away for three or four weeks, which is manageable for my husband and for, you know, my yeah. mom fly over from um, from, um, from England sometimes to help. And um yeah, it was all round. And then it was only later, I suppose the longest trip I've done to Antarctica recently was going down on a, a voyage, a marine science voyage in um, 2019 to study blue whales and krill. And we were down at sea for seven weeks, which seemed like a long time away from the family. But this was pre-COVID and my mom was able to come over from the UK and help look after the kids. So I, that set my mind that rest and yes and comms so good in antarctica now we were whatsapping and phoning people facebooking you you really can do pretty much anything you can phone all the time and it doesn't cost you thousands of dollars like my first winter in antarctica I, my phone bill was thousands of dollars now it's free if you use yes that so it's a very different kettle of fish that you're not is isolated anymore which is a good thing and a bad thing yes <laughs> but i could keep in touch with the children and which was particularly important because that was the year we had the terrible fires down in Tasmania and that was quite terrifying for us all to be on a ship away from our family yeah. we our properties were under threat and yeah not a, not a fun time to be away no that's good that you're still able to stay in touch and just make sure everything's okay yeah absolutely so with the is the research that you were doing as part of the ecotourism was that part of the food chain that you're working on at the moment? It, it's all connected. Um, one of the key roles I play in my job um, as part of being um, under the, in, sort of in that International Whaling Commission family where it's scientists working together, um, there's one consortium that was actually founded by Australia but is multinational um, that has a lot of nations working together to collaborate on research that's non-lethal research um, that can advance the best practice of working on whales and other marine mammals without with, with minimum invasive techniques and minimum harm to those animals but to deliver the biggest bang for your buck in terms of science yeah so our team does everything from putting incredible devices called sonoboys into the ocean to listen for whales um, these are ex-military devices that the military uses now they throw them out of planes and helicopters to listen for enemy submarines and and that sort of that sort of um well, i was going to say vehicle we can't say vehicle underwater but that sort of thing underwater whereas we've been able to um, change that technology and use it for science scientific purposes 
So these amazing devices can pick up blue whale song. Um, and blue whales have one of the, the, the sort of loudest, lowest sounds in on the planet. And that sound transmits through water hundreds of thousands of kilometers. And so as we're departing on our ships out of Hobart um, and sailing past the tip of Tasmania and on our ways, quite often we go past New Zealand, you start hearing the Antarctic blue whales and other whales down in Antarctica. Wow. And rather than traditionally, you know, traditionally ships went and you needed a lot of time and a lot of money just to go up and down in sort of a, a transect pattern, just searching for whales. And if you got lucky, you'd come across some and you could stop and study them. Now we can go pretty much straight to where the whales are because we can hear them singing. That's brilliant. Um, and vocalizing. And then when we get there, we can deploy other amazing technologies that have been developed um, by both our team and this team in this collaborative consortium that I work within and I help to manage. Um, so we can deploy very sophisticated satellite tags on the whales that allow us to track where they're moving. So you know a little bit more about their migration routes and what, which are the important areas that they use that you might need to protect in some way. You can, um, if you can get close enough to, you have to get very close to do that. Um, but you know, you can even just getting close enough to take amazing photos of whales. You can get a library of photographs of whales and they've got different, different species have got different identifying marks. They're unique to individuals and you can compare catalogs over years. For example, humpback whale flukes, most people will be um, most familiar with, or the Antarctic blue whales, their flank, the top, top of their back. Um, with the dorsal fin, there's amazing sort of bluey gray mottling pattern, which is very unique to that whale. Wow. And you can just build up a picture of, through the years. Are we seeing this whale over and over in certain areas? Um, and that gives you an indication is the population very small. So we only see the same whales over and over. Is it very, is it quite yes. big? Because we don't see them very often. Um, and you can look at how they're moving around and it, it all pieces together the information you need to manage a population. How big is it? Where, what are the critical areas it needs it? And then again, if you can get close enough on small boats, usually, um, so you go on a big mother vessel and you launch small boats, you can take biopsy samples, which are just skin and blubber samples from a whale. Yeah. And those can be analyzed um, to look at the genetics of the animal, is it male or female? If it's a female animal, is she pregnant? Which is a good sign because obviously the yeah. population is healthy, it's doing well, it's reproducing. Um, you can, that identification signature, again, if you've got the biopsy the next year of the same animal, you can see where it's been. You can look at the diet, what they're eating, what are their critical foods, their health. There's all sorts of things you can do with a biopsy sample. So. Those are the sort of the icing on the cake if you can get close enough to tag an animal and get biopsies. But every little bit of information we get is really critical. That's amazing. So what are you working on specifically at the moment? At the moment, the team's not going in the field, obviously, because of COVID. So we're all feeling a bit antsy <laughs> and grounded. Yes. We want to be on boat facing whales. But... Um, it's writing data. There have been some major voyages recently, um, in particular, because I've mentioned that voyage that I went on in 2019, and we were yeah. we were looking for blue whales. They were our target species. Um, Antarctic blue whales are critically endangered. There are only you know maybe 
three to 6,000 left. Nobody really knows yet. So we're trying to get all the information we can about them to get a new population estimate to see if they're actually recovering after literally being almost brought to extinction yeah. by industrial whaling. Um, and so we were going, we were targeting the blue whales, we were finding them using the sonovoids I told you about. We were on a ship that we couldn't launch small boats from, so it was very much the work was from the vessel itself, um, getting close to the whales um, as close as it was safe and as long as we didn't disturb them. And we were getting really good photographs of them and drone footage of them. But it was a very, it was unique and it was a really multidisciplinary study. So we didn't go just to look for the whales. Um, we had amazing krill biologists on board who were mapping the 3D maps of the krill that were where the whales were. And not just, it was blue whales, fin whales and humpback whales primarily that we came across. And, and looking at how, what sort of krill the whales associated with. So most people listening would know that krill swarm like bees enormous you know swarms of krill millions if not billions of creatures big and they can some of these can extend for over a kilometer wide they, they're this massive you can almost see them you know see them from the drone imagery and the water looks that's red and, and they come up on the the active acoustics date um instruments as big bands of red and yellow across yeah. the screen on the ship and you can as you go along the ship you can actually map it and then you you can see if the whales are associating with them and, and so one of the thoughts is that blue whales seem to be associated more with very dense shallow swarms of krill um, whereas there are other whales that don't mind a more diffuse spread out swarm that's deeper and, and when you start looking at it, 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 it makes sense because a blue whale is over 30 meters long. They're huge. You know, I think I think they weigh as much as like yeah. 17 African elephants. When they open their mouths and engulf multiple Olympic swimming pools worth of water and krill, they come yes. to a standstill. It's very energetically expensive for them to do that and then squeeze all the water out and um sieve the krill out using their baleen plates um, and so they don't they they only do it when it makes sense for them to do it they're not going to waste time snapping at little pack pockets of krill they're going to go for a big load of krill whereas some of the other whales we've worked out like little minky whales they're not little they're still nine ten meters long but they're much more maneuverable i suppose little sleek missiles that go in and out of the ice and they're much more likely to take small dives for lots of little patches of krill so it all ties into the energetics yeah which then ties into the where the conservation management comes in is it ties into okay humans are wanting to target krill as well as a resource it's a very well managed resource um and the fishery doesn't take anywhere near as much as it, it could biologically at this point in time but is it still competing with creatures like whales because of course a fishing boat is going to target these dense swarms that are easy to maximize your catch with very little effort yeah. like the blue whales do so there's that's where that plays in exactly so to come back to answering your question what we're doing now is looking at data that's come from that 
and then and another voyage that literally happened at the beginning of this year which was also targeting krill with colleagues similar the same colleagues and basically synthesizing the data putting it together and feeding that up to bodies such as the international whaling commission and a, an organization called camlar which is um, the convention for the conservation of antarctic marine living resources where a lot of people here work work with as well and how that scientific information feed into the decisions that are made that manage the krill fishery that manage whale conservation and where you might put marine protected areas etc etc yeah that's amazing yeah and, and all yeah like you said it all ties together because they're part of the you know same community ecosystem and you know food cycle that's very very cool so i saw that part of the work that you do is seeing because of that very small um food chain that you know the whales will eat the krill poop the uh, basically fertilize the ocean help create more krill and you know it just cycles again and there was a bit where it was saying that you know you, you did observe the whales toileting behaviors but how do you observe whale toileting behaviors well if you happen to be on deck when there are whales in the dry you can't really miss it because these plumes of poo are tens <laughs> of meters long and they're bright bright orange because of the <laughs> eating so you really can't miss it um, what's tricky is collecting it and obviously on a big vessel like we were on you can't stop the ship and collect poo but in other colleagues no. around the world and we have on occasion have had success at collecting this poo when you're on a small boat and you're very maneuverable and can stop and grab a few samples but what we were able yeah. to do was um target areas using the sonar voice where we knew there were lots of whales go to them and if we observed feeding behavior so you, you know the assumption is if something's feeding it's going to be pooing very fairly shortly afterwards um, this is obviously quite a productive area there's lots of krill there must have been yep. lots of phytoplankton that the krill were eating etc etc so at the you, you have this um chain of suppositions you make about this area so yeah we went to a, a feeding aggregation of whales um we took water samples at what we called time zero when we got there. Um, and then we followed that body of water. We put what's called a drogue. So it's basically a drifting buoy with electronic devices in it that follows that body of water and goes where the current takes it. And then we in the ship followed that water as well and took samples every day over a five day period and analyzed those samples to see if the fact that although we hadn't absorbed ob observed pooing in the water whether that body of water where whales had been feeding and obviously would have been pooing um, had fertilized their patch of ocean now that's not a simple experiment to do in the massive southern ocean and it's <laughs> no it's not inclusive. what we can say to date is that yes we we observed microbial activity so bacterial activity increase as a result there having been whales and krill there the next step was then that there were students on the voyage who took um, water from the environment and spiked them with poo that had been collected previously and added in laboratory circumstances to see the effect on growth and then you do see a very clear remarked effect yeah. of adding poo which is very rich in iron which is something that the phytoplankton need 
that spikes bacterial growth and spikes phytoplankton growth. Um, and so it's a it's been it's a hypothesis that's pretty it's pretty well known and well tested to date that that you add iron into the Southern Ocean, which is a very, it's very poor in iron. Um, and so much so that you add one paper clip worth of iron in an Olympic sized swimming pool, there's so little there, but yet it's a, a really important wow. micronutrient that phytoplankton need. So if you've got anything that's even the krill themselves pooing, and I think, and that's where we've got to now, it's likely that it's the krill swarms themselves, these millions of little animals pooing themselves, very rich, iron rich um, poo will be fertilizing their local patch and then the whale comes along eats the krill and it's doing massive poos that are also enhancing that very localized fertilization and it all enhances that local productivity yeah. so at a time when there were you know a quarter of a million whales in the ocean before we started hunting them there would have had it been a marked effect of having those large predators feeding and pooing and fertilizing the ocean in their local patch. That yeah, that that's very interesting. Just you know, being able to you know, observe and collect all that data, and just having to be able to because it's the two uh, species that you're having to you know, distinguish the data that you're getting from to be able to identify which one and what it's doing. It's very very cool. Yeah, finishing on food. This seems like a good way to go. <laughs> so um, we will. Uh, move on to some of these other non I guess you know soft questions so what's hobby or interest you have that is most unrelated to your field of work <laughs> um well as a working mum I don't really have many hobbies unfortunately yeah. um, <laughs> I'd like to say it was more I was better but I'm usually so exhausted by the end of the day I don't do an awful lot <laughs> other than get the kids to bed and that's crash fair into bed. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, I used to be a very keen kayaker, not competitively. So, you know, ultimately I will get back into that. And um, I love walking and cycling. But I suppose now what keeps me sane is my garden. I'm a very keen gardener. So oh, and yes. a couple of years ago, we moved to a property that it's only two acres, but it's um, it still needs a lot of work. And um, I we've planted over 50 trees. We've created an orchard. We've planted I don't know how many oh, wow. in the efforts to sort of beat the wallabies and the possums and they keep beating us but I'm I'm, yes. I'm getting more successful <laughs> at using plants that they don't eat so that, that, <laughs> I'm never happier than when I'm actually out in my garden you know so you don't actually leave home you don't have to do anything specific but you're still achieving something oh that's great and you know it's, it's nice to be able to have the, the actual literal acreage to be able to work with for that it's wonderful. Yeah, very lucky. Yes, very, very lucky. Okay, so which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? There are many answers I could give for this. Uh, one of the obvious ones. <laughs> there, are, there are ones that you would have heard before and others that aren't. All, all the books that I remember as a child are the ones that my dad read to me. My dad was the sort of went to work. So did my mum as well. But basically, he'd be the one who read us to bed. And I remember him always twisting wow. stories, putting funny voices on. And I remember very vividly him reading The Hobbit to us and um, and doing all the scary oh. voices Gollum that scared the living day daylights out of us. And this was this was pre-movie, so <laughs> we had only imaginations. 
And it was very fond because yes. mom and dad chose my name, Eleanor, from the Lord of the Rings. Um, and the, the one of the, the oh, flowers. Oh, Yeah, the flowers that grows in the Valley of the Fairies that Sam Ganji calls his little daughter um, at the very end of the books calls her Eleanor. But I also, thinking about this question, I one of the ones that was hilarious was just those classic ladybird books, the really old-fashioned covers that you had that we had when we were very yes. little. And my dad reading them, but doing silly things. Like I remember Cinderella, and one I remember it for the beautiful dresses that Cinderella wore and how beautifully they were illustrated. But two, because my dad would never just say, um, when Prince Charming when people want to come and dance with Cinderella rather than Prince Charming saying excuse me this is my partner um he'd say push off this is my partner and so just all those cheeky things my dad used to do <laughs> and I remember the witch climbing down Rapunzel's tower on color nickel elastic oh that's great yeah it's good to add a little bit of color to it <laughs> And I've had a lot of fun doing twisting books for my kids as well. Although it's not always the best strategy when you want them to go to sleep earlier, if they're giggling away in bed. No, it's not. Exactly. <laughs> Winds them up a little bit, but at least they're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? Oh, there's so many bits of advice. Um, I think the... The key one that sits for me and has been a very strong theme throughout my career is that you, um, yeah, firstly, you don't necessarily have to have an idea of where you're going because your career can take you anyway and it's better to be interested in what you're doing and just have a give it a go. But I think the key theme is other people. So first of all, to collaborate. Gone are the days where you have ivory tower academics who just have their own little study project and they can get funding for that. Now, you really do have to work with people all over the world in order to get results um, and put all those pieces of the jigsaw together. So the work that we do would not be possible without people who could build the technology that we use, design the technology, drive the boats, um, do all the different aspects of research okay, we're quite capable of going and getting biopsy samples from whales, but we, we're not geneticists. We can't analyze those samples, so we collaborate with geneticists. Um, we collaborate with people who are brilliant at matching photographs of whales and are developing AI algorithms that will rapidly match whale photos. So it's just this massive collaborative network, and we wouldn't be able to do what we do without it. So I think you've just got to build your networks as you go. Yes. And then also finding an individual person, like a mentor who can help you through, be that someone who becomes, they don't have to be a good friend, but they could be a good friend who supports you through rough times and good times, or an academic, if you're lucky enough to find someone in, in your per career, or even outside of academia, in my case, that you, you just someone who can support you and you can talk decisions through with before you make them. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, you do need that outside perspective sometimes. Absolutely, especially when it gets tough and you might say towards the end of your PhD when you're thinking about giving up and you've only really got to keep going <laughs> for a few months. You need someone to go, everybody goes like through this. You can do it. It's fine. Just keep going. Don't throw this away. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, even with my undergrad, um, yeah, towards the end of our, it was only three years, right? But even towards mm. the end of that, we did have a couple of friends who just said, no, I can't take this anymore. You know, it's six months ago, but I can't do it. It's like, no, six months, six months, and then you can just say you're done, and then you don't have to worry about it again. Yeah, exactly. How do you find mentors? <laughs> um, how do you find them? I, I, sometimes you just stumble upon them. <laughs> Might, you might just end up with people who are just exceptionally good to talk to or exceptionally supportive of you. A lot of the time, I think you have to actively seek them. If you're lucky enough to be in an institution or in a business, I mean, I don't just talk to scientists here, but there, there often are schemes in place where you're matched with people. Take advantage of them. You're not locked into always working with the one person you're allocated or you choose. You can always change. Um, but you might have to actively seek or just ask because I don't know many people who would say no. Okay, they might be really busy people who couldn't meet with you every week, but I don't know many people who wouldn't say, yeah, sure, I'll be your mentor. We'll, we'll lock in once a month or once every two months that we meet and have a coffee or we have a Zoom and we'll have a chat. And if it works for both of you, it continues to work. And if not, you change. Um, and another way is you could, if, if you get the support of a, an institution or a business to get a coach, you can actually employ coaches and I've had, you know, had a lot of success with that where we've got specific tasks coming up and I know there might be tricky personnel issues or tricky, you know, whatever that needs dealing with and you might want some very specific advice about something. Always take training opportunities when you've got them. Yes, absolutely. It's wonderful. It's brilliant advice. Okay, so, well, thank you so much, Eleanor, for speaking with me today. It has been amazing listening to your wonderful journey. So, you know, varied and colourful and so many opportunities that, you know, you know, very few people would have that chance to take and, you know, being brave enough to just say, yeah, I'll give it a go and see what happens. Yeah, very Either inspiring. Brave or it's a bit of both sometimes like you just you know it's always multiple things that drive you right <laughs> absolutely brilliant so if people would like to find out more about the work that you do how can they find out well one of the best places to go is the australian antarctic division website because there's sort of bios about myself and the team that i work with and um and all sorts of links to the research we do wonderful definitely i'll include those in the show notes Okay, and thank you so much again today. It's been absolutely wonderful. And yeah, I hope you have a brilliant day. Thank you so much, Michelle. Great talking to you. It's amazing to think that one can work on both the smallest organisms on the planet as well as the largest in a single career. But that's exactly what Eleanor has done. And she's been able to pull together all her previous experiences to be able to fulfill her passions in conservation and outreach. To learn more about Eleanor and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Eleanor's work and the Australian Antarctic Program through the Australian Antarctic Division, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.